This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My dear Vatnagar, I have received information that a big ship of the Sindhya Steam Navigation Company will carry a cargo of radioactive sand from Travancore from which you get thorium and uranium to America. Now I want to know whether this is in order or comes within the scope of the agreement between our energy committee and the Travancore Darbar. That's Jawaharlal Nehru. He was writing to Santiswarup Bhatnagar in January 1948. Bhatnagar as in the Director General of Scientific and Industrial Research. Now um this is rather dramatic scene in the series Rocket Boys where scientist Somi Baba virtually threatens the Travancore Maharaja into cancelling this export plan either stop selling monazite to the US right now and surrender all of your rare minerals to the custody of the government of India or face immediate military action That is more or less how Baba appeared to deflect the rather pompous Maharaja. The United States had been making a furious effort to sort of buy up all sources of nuclear energy worldwide against the background of Cold War. The Travancore Kingdom was probably trying to sell its mineral resources in preparation for independence. Between 1937 and 1945, 73% of US monazite imports came from Travancore. In the opposite direction, one third of Travancore's monazite exports went to the US. So when the CSIR proposed a survey of Travancore's thorium reserves in 1946, Diwan CP Ramaswamy Iyer refused to surrender the control of thorium deposits straight away. He had already understood the value of thorium in the international market. He hoped that its export would bankroll the economy of an independent Travancore. Now, this is the story I want to take up in the second episode of Atomic India, the five-part series on history channel on the history of atomic or nuclear energy research in India. You remember that I said that research in nuclear energy suddenly assumed a much higher and stronger profile worldwide between 1945 and 1948 i want to offer in this episode a case study of how this process unfolded in india i'll give you two examples the first example involves an account of how uh, the profile of atomic energy research suddenly went up by tackling the changes in the profile of major scientists and research laboratories in india in fact i'll be talking mostly about the process and negotiations about organization of large scale science research in india which took place uh, roughly between 1937-38 to 1945 or so but the second story is going to be even more dramatic 
it tracks the sudden aspiration for independence in the Travancore state with the hope that it could sustain an economy on the back of international exports of its thorium deposits. More specifically, it's a story of how the Indian state immediately took steps to block that nascent aspiration. Arrangements were made for Travancore's integration into India and a submission of its rare earth deposits to the absolute control of the independent Indian state. Now, the series Rocket Boys made it appear too dramatic by reducing a more complex process to a few minutes of threat mongering by top Indian nuclear scientists. I'll tell you the larger story today. As Janabi Falke observed, we need the history of what it meant to establish, maintain and extend the discipline of nuclear physics in India before and under the specter of the bomb. So let's get back to 1938. The Indian Science Congress was celebrating its Silver Jubilee 25th anniversary in the year 1938. The meeting was momentous enough for the Viceroy, the Viceroy of India, Lord Linlithgow, to be present. The scientific community of India had come of age. The moment called for a review of the place of scientific research in modern India. Incidentally, it was a joint meeting with the British Association of Advancement of Science and Ernst Rutherford was to be the president. Unfortunately, he passed away three months before the meeting, but his printed address was read out. Rutherford made a connection, a powerful connection, between scientific research and industrial development in Britain. He emphasized the importance of science as a factor in national development. He also offered an account of the gradual upscaling of his own research, from using modest instruments to handling large ones along the way. His address resonated with Indian scientists. He dealt with a theme that many Indian scientists had been themselves seriously considering for a while now. The question of the organization of science as a national activity or a national mission, really. It seemed as though Rutherford had been calling upon Indian scientists to use their knowledge to generate opportunities for the betterment of life of the Indian masses. He said that the scientific community of India should organize itself through planning or centralized coordination of applied scientific and industrial research to be led by the government. However, he was also certain, Rutherford, of course, was certain that the university should be left free to develop their independent line of research. He believed vigorous research in basic sciences must complement applied science for the overall development of nations. Nonetheless, he did seem to propose centralized coordination of the utilization of scientific research for industrial development as the most efficient way 
to direct the progress of India. He referred, for instance, to the government of science by an agency like the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research in Britain. Five years later, and I'll come to this in a while, his colleague Archibald Vivian Hill would echo Rutherford's proposal and yet again reinforce the idea of centralization of government-led scientific research. Now, the idea of centralized coordination and concentration of scientific research resonated equally well with the concerns of state formation among members of the scientific community who had been working with the Indian nationalist leadership. So uh, this called for a unique convergence. The opinion of several other speakers, apart from Rutherford, I mean, such as Viceroy Linlitgo, scientist Shanti Swarup Bhatnagar, politician Shama Prasad Mukherjee, converged on the point that industrial-scale application of science alone was the means, the sole means, to deliver happiness, peace and prosperity to a large number of people. Now, at the same time, the Indian nationalist leadership was impressed by the Russian example of planning for industrialization. And they were impressed even by the planned reconstruction of Nazi Germany. As a matter of fact, it was the reigning fashion in the 30s, state intervention in regulating markets was acceptable even in New Deal America. The Indian National Congress and a section of the scientific community came together to form a national planning committee for the development and progress of India in, in 1938, later this year. Meghnad Saha, Palit Professor of Physics um, in the University of Calcutta, wrote to Jawaharlal Nehru that his scientist colleagues had already given much thought to the problem of reconstruction of the economic and industrial life of the country. And those thoughts must now be coordinated for fruitful outcomes. Saha hoped that the NPC, the National Planning Committee, would provide something like Sun Yat-sen's San Min Chin, or the three principles of the people in China, something like that for India. So most scientists in India and Britain put their weight behind the modernization vision. Committees were established to take stock of Indian natural resources, scientific and technical manpower, including even a scientific instruments committee. Now, these committees of the National Planning Committee redefined the Indian terrain with categories they'd come to see as characteristic of a modern society that Indian independence or independent India would eventually become. So modern India was at once a scientific and political project. Now, of course, uh, the war came in between and these ambitious plans of the National Planning Committee were shelved for the time being. 
Now, with wartime mobilization of Indian resources again returning to the absolute authority of the British government, ideas of progress began to be replaced by development in the sense of reconstruction. But this was also the first coordinated exercise of scientific industrialism, which means research and production would have to be coordinated to deliver necessary services and equipment for the war. Interestingly enough, Indian scientists remained in charge of scientific institutions. For example, the Commerce Minister of the Viceroy's Council recommended that Bhatnagar should be given charge of the wartime science effort in India. As a result, the Board of Scientific and Industrial Research, BSIR, was established in April 1940. The board would now offer advice to the British government of India by evaluating proposals for research from universities, industries, and trades and research institutes for approval of funding. The mandate for the BSIR was almost the same as that of um, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, DSIR, in Britain, except that the BSIR was constituted entirely for war-related scientific and industrial research. But it was the first major case of industrial-scale application of scientific research in India. But let us be clear, it was not quite the application of science for the development or progress of India. Official scientists like Bhatnaga, non-official scientists like Homi Bhabha or Meghnad Saha met in Calcutta for a symposium on post-war organization of scientific research in India. This is slightly later. Now, they wanted to understand how the wartime infrastructure in science and technology should be assimilated, should be appropriated for peaceful civil organization. They also wanted to understand what the organizational model for science and technology should be for post-war and independent India. Now, an important recommendation of the symposium was the establishment of a national research council, and I quote, outside the control of official government machinery, but accountable to the government of India, unquote. A. V. Hill, the representative of the Royal Society, who visited India in 1944, to confabulate with Indian scientists also preferred research organization entirely under government control. Soon after, there were two goodwill missions of Indian scientists and industrialists, uh, which visited the UK, the USA and Canada. They were um, trying to see for themselves the applied scientific and industrial research laboratories of, of the allied countries. 
So Meghnad Saha, of course, was one of the members, one of the delegates of these missions. Um, he wrote later about this experience that OSRD of USA, that is Office of uh, Scientific Research and Development, which coordinated scientific research for military purposes, had a budget larger than that of the peacetime government of India. So by the middle of 1945, and certainly by August of that year, the significance of atomic weapons for scientific research and its implications for the organization of research now confronted the Indian scientific community. Questions of organizing scientific research for national development were already well under discussion. So um, these two concerns now come to merge and an atomic energy research committee was established under the CSIR of India. And it met for the first time on May 15, 1946. Now, why Homi Jahangir Bhabha was made its first chairperson is not quite clear. One likely reason for his choice as a leader can be the establishment of TIFR, Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, one month prior to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it may have seemed that he anticipated the future status of atomic research in the world, that he had some special um, knowledge or insight or vision. But more importantly, his proximity to the Tata family probably counted more, um, given that J.R.D. Tata himself was also a member of the Board for Research on Atomic Energy. In its very first meeting, the AERC declared the TIFR an institute of priority in the national context. The committee appeared to presume that there simply were not enough funds available in India for investment in atomic research compared to the US and Britain and so on. Therefore, and I quote, it is necessary that all large-scale research in atomic physics in the near future should be concentrated at one center in the country, unquote. And this one center would be the recently established Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, Bombay. So the Indian Science Congress meeting of January 1947 was shaped in the spirit of independence, even though the formal end of imperial rule took place in August that year. Incidentally, Jawaharlal Nehru, vice president of the new interim government in New Delhi, leader of the Indian National Congress, was also chosen as the chairperson of the Indian Science Congress. Interestingly enough, even as the British were preparing to leave India, the Science Congress wrote to the British Science Academy to send a team of delegates since the community of Indian scientists had been keen to establish and maintain contacts with men of science from all over the world. While some links were severed, new ones emerged and others were strengthened. It was an explicit acknowledgement 
that science required international collaboration. The subcontinent was partitioned and free of imperial rule in August 1947. A significant section of the scientific community had taken time to combine their practice to the national context and cause. It made for a unique convergence of opinion yet. Nationalists, industrialists, scientists, political leaders in India, the British government of India and British scientists who were involved with matters relating to India. In fact, many of these categories often overlapped. All of them agreed that India was backward and it needed a very good post-war plan for development. The Indian nationalist political leadership demanded a political framework of sovereignty and self-rule. As a free country, they would pursue industrialization of India and the group of scientists associated with them, for example, Meghnad Saha and those active within the National Planning Committee, wanted to invest in fundamental research. Scientists threw in their lot with nationalist leadership also because that was the only group which offered them hope for both the practice of science and in their pursuit of modern society. And I quote, away from the traditions and superstitions of India, unquote. Even if their British colleagues supported them, and they had benefited from patronage for training in science in England, their place in Indian society was not supported by the British government or even the Gandhian um, ideologues. A significant and powerful sections of leaders in India and in Britain thought it imperative that history of India must be made to unfold and accept the broader ontology of Western science and modernity to overcome backwardness and superstition. Through the practice of science, they believed Indians would find their own independent subjectivity or agency and take their rightful place in the modern world. Now, if this is one side of the story, the story of how research in India came to be organized under tight state control between 1945 and roughly 1948 and later, let me, let me make the story a little more concrete with a case study. How exactly was this control by the state of India exercised? Let me give you an example. And this example um, brings me to the question of Travancore's thorium deposit and its aspiration for independence. How are these two connected and how uh, the story is connected with um, the organization of nuclear research in India. Let me get down um, or let me get back by a few years to the location of Travancore. Between the coastal towns of Kollam, formerly Quilon, and Nagarkoil in the formerly 
a princely state of Travancore, which is today's Kerala, there lies a huge concentration of monazite beach sands. Monazite is a phosphate compound composed of a number of rare earth elements. Now, among these uh, rare earth elements uh, in monazite, um, there is thorium, which is radioactive. Now, the official history of rare earths in Kerala begins in the early 20th century in 1908 or 9. There was a German chemist called uh, C.W. Schomburg who, um, and I quote, chanced upon a few yellowish green particles in some material from South India, unquote. The first mining lease for monazite was granted to the London Cosmopolitan Mining Company, which was um, controlled by German interests. By uh, 1911, the bulk of uh, extraction activities were carried out by two British companies. They were called the Travancore Minerals Company and Hopkins and Williams Limited. The demand for monazite rose steadily through the 1910s. Thanks to their political control in India, with its huge reserves of monazite, British firms had a lock on the supply of raw monazite to lighting companies all over Western Europe and North America. Now, monazite essentially was useful for for gas lighting. Therefore, uh, the production of monazite rose steadily until the end of World War I, when the market suddenly crashed. Now, the main reason for this crash was probably a general decline in the use of gas as an illuminating agent. That's the first half or the first phase of the monazite story from Travancore. But it was not the end of the story. The story would get a new lease of life in another 25 or so years. Now, it became known, of course, that thorium was a potential nuclear fuel. That becomes common knowledge in the 1940s. Now, thorium's radioactive properties um, had been known since 1898. You know, there was uh, Marie Curie's research and Gerhard Kulschmidt also carried out research on um, these properties of thorium. Now, the importance of thorium as a potential nuclear fuel, however, only became widely realized after the dawn of the nuclear age in 1945. The isotope thorium-232, when bombarded by slow-moving neutrons, decays into uranium-233, which is fissionable and can be used as a fuel in a nuclear breeder reactor. Now, this is where an exciting story begins all over again. Thorium, all on a sudden, would be imagined as a means to a grand political end, which is the independence for the princely state of Travancore. It depended on the insatiable global demand 
for atomic fuels by the United States. Shortly though, very shortly as a matter of fact, thorium would become an instrument by which India would reinforce its territorial sovereignty over Travancore. And I'll, I'll be coming to that story now. Travancore was one of the most uh, progressive Indian princely states. Along with its neighbors to the north, the smaller kingdom of Cochin and the Malabar region of British India, it would um, later become the Indian state of Kerala. This is in 1956. In 1937, Sir C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer, who was a well-known lawyer and experienced administrator, was appointed Diwan or the Prime Minister of Travancore. Now, Sir C.P. would rule Travancore for the next decade. He resigned from this position of the Prime Minister when the Maharaja of Travancore agreed to merge his state with India unconditionally. Now, that was still in the future. Now, our conventional wisdom about the integration of princely states make us believe that uh, even though it was legally possible for the princely states to seek independence, such a possibility was not really a practical outcome. It would seem as though the princely states only had to choose whether to belong to India or to Pakistan. However, some states such as Travancore, and I'm not here getting into controversies uh, about the integration of larger states like uh, Kashmir or Junagar or, or Hyderabad. That's another story altogether. Here I'm talking about genuine aspirations and careful calibrated preparations for eventual autonomy in independence by some of these princely states. Travancore was one of those. There were few officials in the princely states as vocal about independence as uh, Travancore's Devan, Sir C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer. He was a frank and avowed conservative, an avid supporter of monarchy, and deeply distrusted the leading lights of the Congress, such as Gandhi, Nehru or Patel. Um, he spent the period from 1942 to 1947 engaged in uh, uh, making a case, as strong a case as he possibly could, for Travancore's right to retain its independence after the British left. Clearly, all of Travancore's resources, real and imagined, were being mobilized to push the case for independence. Under these circumstances, what is most surprising is the Diwan's reluctance or inability to use a powerful weapon in a state's arsenal, thorium. At just this moment, that very moment, the United States was scarring the world 
looking to purchase or control all sources of atomic energy. This was no secret to Travancore's rulers. In turn, the United States was equally well aware of Travancore's strategic value and aspiration for independence. After all, and I said this before, more than two-thirds of US supply of rare earths came from Travancore. Once the United States dropped two nuclear explosives on Japan in August 1945, one of the most important early struggles for the US was uh, to ensure its military dominance all over the world. It was possible only through a continued monopoly of atomic expertise and atomic materials. The US was engaged in a frenetic effort to control all sources of nuclear fuels worldwide, either by buying it all up or by seeking a veto over sales to third parties. Initially, uranium was the main object, but when in 1944, it was clear that thorium too would be used to fuel nuclear reactors, thorium was added to the list of strategic commodities that the US was now seeking to monopolize and to control. So, Travancore's monazite sands, along with thorium in Brazil and South Africa, uranium in the Congo, and smaller quantities of strategic minerals in Western Europe, now became the focus of a global American effort to ensure that these materials did not fall in the hands of the enemy and that they must be available to to the United States whenever it needed it. So Travancore's rare earth reserves were in the form of surface deposits. As a result, it could be extracted fairly easily. Moreover, the presence and the value of monazite sands had been known since the beginning of the century, and I said that already. Four private companies, Indian and European, had already been awarded exclusive contracts to mine and export monazite, mostly to Germany, France, United States, and England. So in June 1945, with the war winding down, C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer announced. He dropped a bombshell, really. He announced that he intended to embargo all experts of um, ilmenite and monazite, except those essential for war needs. Travancore wanted an end of sale of raw sands and access to the capital and expertise necessary to set up its own domestic uh, processing plants. C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer had long wanted to strengthen the economic base of a state through industrialization. He saw the rare earths industry as uh, an obvious place to start. Now, among the most... Um, most controversial issues in Travancore's relationship uh, with the four mining companies was the reluctance of these companies to build a processing plant locally. 
this is what CP wanted to change. So um, it started secret and discreet negotiations with the U.S. Strictly speaking, the U.S. government could not make any official approach to the princely states without first getting the permission of the government in New Delhi. But U.S. diplomats soon found covert ways to begin direct talks with the Dravan of Travancore. From as early as 1944, the United States was aware that Travancore's nursed visions of independence. After Hiroshima, when the strategic value of thorium came to light, Travancore's monazite sands became valuable in an entirely different way. This realization had the potential to transform Travancore's relations with the Indian government and the rest of the world. Only days after Nagasaki, Ramaswamy Iyer wrote to the Maharaja and I quote, if thorium could be utilized to manufacture atomic bombs, Travancore will enjoy a very high position in the world, unquote. So, in April 1946, the newly formed Board of Atomic Energy Research of the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research announced they would soon begin, and I quote, an intensive geological and physicochemical survey of the Travancore thorium deposits. Ramaswamy Iyer made it clear that he was not going to have any of that. He said Travancore was the sole owner of the mineral sands and was not willing to, and I quote, surrender control of thorium deposits to any outside agency, the British government included, unquote. In September 1946, Travancore concluded negotiations with monazite extracting companies. These negotiations re-established the state's sole ownership of the mineral sands. And it made clear that the companies were mere agents and contractors of the state. At the same time, and note this, at the same time, Ramaswamy Iyer publicly stated that no foreign companies had contracts to extract the sands, that there was a ban on exports of monazite, and that all decisions would be made in close consultation with the government of India. In other words, he was lying. So, Travancore was already engaged in secret negotiations with the British government. It was going to export monazite to the UK. The negotiations were concluded in early 1947. Now, Travancore was to supply 9,000 tons of monazite to Britain over the next three years. In return, the British government promised to, and I quote, contribute their good offices, unquote, to encourage Thorium Limited to construct a processing plant in Travancore. Interestingly enough, this was not as secret a negotiation as it seems. The British shared this information with, um, with Bhabha, 
He was at the time the chairman of, of the Atomic Energy Board of uh, CSIR. British records of this conversation show that he is reported to have expressed, and I quote, Baba is reported to have expressed satisfaction at having been informed in advance. And most importantly, and I quote again, Baba did not consider that the action of Travancore conflicted with the interests of India. This, I must confess, comes from British records. And I'm here using um, material as presented by by E.T. Abraham. But there's no reason to doubt him, really. He is probably the most well-known researcher and scholar on the history of nuclear energy research in India. So there is some amount of confusion here. And there's a contrast to what uh, the mainstream of Indian scientists and political leaders had been thinking. There's some missing link somewhere here, which I've not been able to work out in totality. On the other hand, according to Jawaharlal Nehru, there was consternation among scientists at the annual meeting of the Indian Science Congress in January 1947 about possible exports of monazite. This, this consternation led to the passage of a special resolution and I quote, the state should own and control all these materials. Unquote. It referred to all these materials, minerals, and more specifically to those minerals which were necessary for the production of atomic energy. Later, in April 1947, Nehru was speaking to the Indian cabinet and it is reported that he said, and I quote, he would approve the use of air power against Travancore if necessary to bring them to heel. Nehru was in absolutely no doubt that the government of India should be involved in any dealings with foreign parties regarding the sale of India's mineral resources. May 1947 is when Nehru asked the head of CSIR, that is Shanti Swarup Bhatnagar, to immediately rush to Travancore and find out more information about the nature of their arrangement with the British. Nehru was the head of the government of British India at the time. He had or he did not have full information about the negotiations with the British uh, government and the Travancore state as late as uh, June, May, June 1947. This is the mission in which Bhatnagar was accompanied by Bhaba. Not much details information is available by uh, of this mission. The trip seems to have borne fruit rather quickly. And this is the scene that you actually saw in that series Rocket Boys. The trip appears to have borne fruit rather quickly. And in early June 1947, there was the creation of uh, a joint committee between Travancore and India on atomic energy. There were nine members of this committee, six would be appointed by CSIR and three would be appointed by the Travancore state. 
Now, C. Rajagopalachari, the Minister of Industries and Supplies of the interim government at the time, uh, made this announcement and I quote, The public may rest assured that the atomic energy resources of India will not be frittered away or go to waste. I am grateful to Sir C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer for his cooperation in this matter. We have deputed Sir S.S. Fatnaga and Professor Bhaba to go to Travanko to discuss matters with him and the present arrangement results from these negotiations. Unquote. After his visit to Travancore, and this is where the story takes another turn. After his visit to Travancore and the creation of this joint committee, Baba approaches the Prime Minister Nehru and explains to him the importance of rare earths as a state resource. Baba no longer thought it was perfectly fine to allow Travancore to export monazite. He now presented thorium as a national asset that would allow India to obtain scarce foreign technologies and expert assistance in return. Given its potential, thorium was too valuable to be controlled by any agency other than the national state. In other words, Baba took this opportunity to ensure that he would have complete operational control of the country's atomic energy program. In a note written to Nehru soon after independence, he wrote, and I quote, The development of atomic energy should be entrusted to a very small and high-powered body, composed of, say, three people with executive power and answerable directly to the Prime Minister without any intervening link. The present Board of Research on Atomic Energy cannot be entrusted with this work since it is an advisory body which reports to the governing body of the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research composed of 28 members including officials, scientists, and industrialists. Secret matters cannot be dealt with under this organization. Unquote. In this note, Baba strikes themes that would characterize the growth of atomic energy programs worldwide. Secrecy, centralization, an unaccountable executive power. Jawaharlal Nehru bought into this vision completely and gave Baba all he wanted. At this point, I'd like you to recall the letter with which I had begun the first episode. Nehru referring to that note by Baba to the Defence Minister Sardar Baldev Singh. I'll have more to talk about the shaping of atomic energy research in independent India in the next episode. For the moment, I look forward to seeing you again. The next episode is going to get even more interesting and dramatic. Do listen to History Chatter in Epilogue Media and all your favorite podcast streaming platforms. I'll see you next time.